Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Today we are talking about the Anabaptists and the Mennonites on the Denomination series. We're going to start off broad with the Anabaptists and then move more narrowly into the Mennonites specifically. It is raining. I have a metal roof. You may hear some background noise. I apologize for that in advance. It's just the way things rumble. Before we begin, two things which have been repeated every episode. First, Christ the Cure is subscriber-supported. We are at the minimum goal for continuing into Season 5. Prayerfully consider becoming a member of the patron team at patreon.com forward slash Christ is the Cure. If you find Christ the Cure materials to be beneficial, if you found this series to be helpful, if you look forward to more materials in the future, prayerfully consider committing to a year of being a patron in the first or second tier, whatever is most affordable for you. Um, there are some perks, early episodes, things of that nature. And then I do want to do another patron-exclusive course. There's a couple of those already for you. If you're not already a member, then you can go access those ones that I've done in the past. And then we'll do an exclusive end-of-the-year giveaway for patrons. I want to start doing that because without patrons, none of this would be happening. And I really wish I could do more extra for patrons. And so I want to do that um, as we continue on. So prayerfully consider becoming a patron. And point number two as always, I am talking about a tradition that is not my own. I'm doing my best. Check my work. If you're in this tradition, I apologize for any slips or accidental misrepresentations. I'm trying to go to your sources to find out information. With this particular episode in general, it's it, it was a little bit difficult, um, but you'll see why as we go through it. So let's go ahead and talk about it. This installment will have a longer historical section than most and a shorter exposition on the other factors. And I think that that will be made clear why it's that way as we proceed. So let's get into the historical summary. As with the previous installments, we will treat the Anabaptist as a unit or a broader tradition. And tracing the Anabaptist movement is quite difficult because of the history of, quote, the Anabaptists, end quote, or the Radical Reformers, as they're also called. We'll do our best to cover some of the main points and main groups. However, we simply cannot cover everyone. Um, I was getting messages about this episode in advance whenever I announced that this would be one of the upcoming ones. And I, and I always feel like I'm disappointing people because I'm not going to be able to get to the variations that were brought up in some of those DMs, which I learned that I have quite a few followers um, on social media from a Mennonite or Anabaptist in general background, which is kind of interesting. I don't know why, but I just didn't expect that. It's not a particularly large group um, from what I can observe relative to other groups. But let's get into it. Uh, so the radical reformers arose during the Reformation, but they were removed from those Protestants that sought out continuity with the historic church, but especially took issues with the magisterial reformers that we've already discussed so far. So you can kind of see how I'm breaking this up. We've talked about those that began as magisterial reformers, and now we're moving into those other ones. I'm trying to do it also kind of chronologically, a little bit difficult, but we're starting with those principally in the Reformation. So you'll see that in the next episode too. Uh, anyway, we noted that this series was limited to Protestant denominations, and to that we could point out that while historically the radicals are Protestant in a literal historical sense of the word, that is, they came out of the Reformation, it could be argued that they're not actually Protestant in terms of a theological category. Um, and so that really goes back to 
how we're defining and classifying those who would be Protestants. Of course, I've already kind of mentioned that Lutherans and and the Anglicans don't really like being called Protestants to begin with. So that's just worth noting that they, they came out of the Reformation and are Protestant in that literal sense, but labeling them as Protestant is not correct. And you'll see that with a couple of other groups that I've included in this series, which makes my introduction episode a little bit weird because I did say Protestant denominations, but like we'll cover the Adventists, um, which are not really Protestant or really even connected to the Protestant Reformation. So that's so that's my fault. Um, but at least with this group, they are connected to the Reformation in a literal sense as protesting against the medieval church of that time. So the radical reformers were a diverse group and tracing commonalities can be difficult. In fact, radical reformer is a broader category while Anabaptists are a category of radical reformers. The shared beliefs between the reformers and the radicals were basically their critiques against Catholicism, but reformers in various locations quickly viewed the radicals as being fickle and wild or anarchists. Luther would react against a group of proclaimed prophets who were radicals who tried to piggyback off of Luther's reforms for their own personalized agendas, but these were quite different than those who would be qualified as radical in, say, Switzerland was Zwingli, and we'll get to that here in a second. Um, so the radicals were not monolithic. They weren't unified, but it's really kind of a broad umbrella term where groups fell inside of this term. And usually they're categorized by historians in three groups. You had the Anabaptists, you had the Spiritualists, and then the Rationalists. And the Rationalists are best understood as the anti-Trinitarian radical reformers that would come out. Where it gets confusing is that a lot of times the radicals would just be called Anabaptist by those in their day for polemic's sake. But historians have recognized these three separate categories underneath that larger umbrella of the radical movement, leaving the Anabaptists as merely one type and also the most influential of the radical reformers. While they disagreed with the magisterial reformers, they were the closest to the magisterial reformers compared to the spiritualists or the rationalists. Those two groups are not of interest for this series. They don't really fit into my parameters that I established in episode one, I believe. But we're focusing on the Anabaptists. So generally, the Anabaptists are traced to Zwingli's Switzerland. Um, Zwingli's approach to the Reformation was through procedure and calm and collected disputations, a methodology that really just clashed with the radicals who took more of a forceful approach, especially and that early on, they would interrupt Catholic services, they would cause unrest over issues, they would even smash icons and images and relics of the saints. And even though there was an agreement in the doctrine, uh, you had the Zwinglians and these radicals who both agreed that these icons, images, and relics shouldn't be there, the method of implementing those doctrines differed drastically. While Zwingli wanted his Christian city to approach the whole ordeal with order, legally, and peace. And so for Zwingli and his associates, this was seen as anarchy caused by the radicals and was not Christ-like or productive, causing conflicts. On the flip side of that, the Anabaptists, or the radicals, would denounce Zwingli as a hypocrite because he would call for the cleansing of churches from icons, which was seen as idolatry, but he wouldn't forcefully implement those reforms. He would rely on the churches to do what was requested of them and that was determined by legal procedures. 
For the radicals, this was not a productive means of implementing those ideas. In terms of these Anabaptists, there were various leaders in the movement, some who actually stood by Zwingli personally for some time and then left, and then there was others who did not. What needs to be said is that these individuals were not um, unintellectual. They were highly intelligent, influential, and generally considered respectable amongst the people. In 1524, a man named Willem Rubley began preaching against infant baptism with others following suit. Now, I've used the word Anabaptist already, but that's a little bit anachronistic because we haven't quite gotten there. At this point, they're still just radicals, okay? So the teaching began to spread around Zurich, that is the teaching against infant baptism, to which the state church in Zurich commanded infants be brought to be baptized, while Zwingli and his associates actually moved to debate on the subject with these radicals. The problem was the radicals weren't all in agreement on how to proceed, and some radicals had actually caused waves by disrupting Zwingli and services or vandalizing the baptismal fonts. The city called for a public debate on baptism, which lasted for two days, and Zwingli and Bullinger would be those defending infant baptism and kind of representing the city of Zurich, and they would be granted victory by the city council. The result was banishment for those who did not baptize their infants and a further commitment to no private religious gatherings outside of the state church. In 1525, a few leaders within the radical movement baptized many adults who had already been baptized as children already, making for a significant new community who would take on the Lord's Supper and had fellowship outside of the state church despite those uh, pronouncements by the city council. This movement is known as the Swiss Brethren, but should not be confused with the Global Brethren movement from the UK. But eventually they would be driven out of Zurich into other parts of Switzerland. And following this, Zwingli would write a treaty against radicals called baptism, rebaptism, and infant baptism. The term behind rebaptism would actually be Anabaptism, which is where that label came from. So now we can talk about them as Anabaptists on the historical timeline. So in 1526, Zurich put in place the death penalty for anyone who would rebaptize another, which was now considered a heresy. And during this time, uh, capital punishment for heresy was normative. Okay, that's just one of the things of the time. This would lead to the first Anabaptist martyr known as Felix Mance, and eventually a confession would be drafted by the Swiss Brethren, which was more concerned with ethics rather than theological confessions that we are used to seeing. The Anabaptists argued for believers' baptism. They put an emphasis on the excommunication of the unworthy, the Lord's Supper being for only those who had been baptized, separation of the true believers from unbelievers in all religious and political matters, the importance of the pastoral office, total pacifism and nonviolence, and the rejection of oaths. The radicals viewed lifestyle as being more important than theology and argued that the other Protestants worked backwards and they were particularly concerned with a strong separation of church and state. This is not the end of the story. There is much more that could be said here. I would highly recommend you pick up like, I don't know, uh, 2,000 Years of Christ's Power by Nick Needham. Volume 3, I believe, is the one you want. It talks about the Reformation, and you can learn more about the Anabaptists or the other radicals there. Um, most church histories will deal with the, the radical reformers. 
But now we're going to zoom in on a particular figure that is Minnow Simons. Simons was baptized by Anabaptists in Holland, and he would go on to organize enough congregations that his name became heavily attached to the Anabaptist movement, particularly called the Mennonites. This group is easily the most influential in the movement at large, and Simons' writings would heavily impact Anabaptists everywhere. Simons would spend his life as a hunted man with all of Europe understanding the Anabaptists as anarchists seeking revolution. And so he preached at night, he baptized in streams, he planted churches while ordaining pastors, and he did so in abundance. They did very well for being persecuted. His works brought together and reformed other Anabaptists, which was a very significant move for them. And he also advocated very heavily for total pacifism. Simons also put a great deal of effort into pushing back against the spiritualists, that is those other radicals. Uh, these spiritualists were claiming new prophetic revelation to which Simon sat firmly on the importance of scripture against private revelation. He would go on to write the foundation of Christian doctrine, where his beliefs would be more clearly articulated and seen in reference later on. We will highlight some of the views that come up when Mennonites are discussed, um, where Minnow's views are automatically transferred to Mennonites at large. And I want to bring this up because of that transference. Um, what I mean is Minnow held to some views and some early Mennonites held to some views that modern Mennonites do not hold, but because they are Mennonites, it is assumed that they share those views with Simons or those early Mennonites. So I want to briefly talk about them here and then we'll revisit in a second. So Simons actually rejected the doctrine of original sin as it had been understood in the Western church. He taught that the atonement of Christ was universal and applied to all humans until they reached the age of discretion. Guilt did not occur until they deliberately sinned. Thus, children were guiltless until they sinned themselves rather than having the imputation of Adam's sin. Though they still had the seed of corruption, which would inevitably lead to sinful actions. Simmons' Christology concerning the incarnation, however, was more scandalous and just outright heretical. He held to a celestial flesh in the incarnation. So his position consisted of this idea of Christ's flesh being heavenly flesh, not taken from Mary. Instead, this flesh was created for the incarnation and implanted in Mary's womb. His human nature thus was not received from Mary, and he held to this, believing that it would keep Christ from any taint of sin. He also rejected other Augustinian views on soteriology and predestination, and he argued for libertarian freedom. He rejected the bondage of the human will, um, the bondage of humans to sin that was held across the Lutheran and Reformed traditions, and he rejected justification by faith alone. And this was because his primary concern was maintaining human responsibility and action, leaving no room for shifting blame or excuse. Some would argue that this is because the Anabaptist mindset was, again, ethics first, theology second. Um, on scripture, he held that the Apocrypha was canonical, but he held to solo scriptura, that is, no appeal to tradition, the Bible only, with a specific emphasis on the New Testament rather than the Old Testament. He stressed discontinuity between the two Testaments, and he placed the New Testament as supreme. So those are just some of his views. We'll circle back on that in a second. The Mennonite beliefs would be founded on a confession drafted in Holland in 1632 and comprised of 18 articles. These articles have more theological positions than, say, the ones that came prior. This confession would detail faith in God as creator, humanity's fall and restoration at the coming of Christ, Christ as the Son of God who redeemed humankind on the cross, obedience to 
Christ's law and the gospel, the necessity of repentance and conversion for salvation, baptism as a public testimony to faith, the Lord's Supper as an expression of common union and fellowship, matrimony only among the spiritually kindred, um, obedience to and respect for the civil government except in the use of armed force, exclusion from the church and social ostracism of those who sin willfully and future reward for the faithful and punishment for the wicked, uh, which that quote was actually from, I believe, Olson's handbook of denomination in the United States. Uh, he summarized that confessions position. Well, so that was our historical summary. Now let's talk about some notes before we move on, which it's going to be the first time we do that, but there are some notes that should be said. And really, this kind of the idea is to clear up some misconception. First, Mennonites and the Amish are not interchangeable. It is an error to think so. Uh, both are from the Anabaptist root, and there is agreement between them on some basic doctrines, but their applications differ. Really, that's where you'll see differences in Anabaptist groups, differences in applications. The Amish were more separatist than the Mennonites, and they held that the Mennonites were not practicing shunning or separation appropriately. As it has been hinted, this is not the only distinction in Anabaptist groups. There are other Anabaptist groups, such as the Brethren, the Hutterites, the Berteroffs, etc. Additionally, over the years, there have been variations that are ultimately combinations of these different groups, like there's Mennonite Amish or the Mennonite Brethren, etc. And so to go into all these would be quite difficult, especially since it's hard just tracking a clear doctrinal statements from one or the other, okay? Um, but for the most part, their differences are actually in practice anyway. So that we're talking how much technology one can use or whether or not one can have private property or whether or not they all share property in a community. So from here, I, I'm going to be looking at Mennonites specifically and broadly. So my second note is that the Mennonites are also diverse in how they practice their faith and worship. When it comes to like conservatism and liberalism within Mennonite congregations, differences can really be seen in how they dress and their style of worship, whether it's, you know, acapella uh, versus variations in, in the style or lit liturgy. And some of these issues actually should be described better as like traditionalism versus like contemporary, uh, though you could say, you know, traditional is conservative. Um, but liberal versus conservative in this context may be kind of strange because we've been using it so far for like social issues. Uh, this really deals more with practical things, you know, uh, what kind of media can be consumed, whether or not media at all should be consumed, uh, whether or not drinking is acceptable, dancing is acceptable, how you dress. So there is variation in Mennonite traditions uh, today in terms of a more traditional conservative type where things are more rigid, I guess, for lack of a better term. Um but then some Mennonites on the scale look more like Southern Baptists, and then some further down the scale are a little bit more liberal. In that same vein, you'll have some that are creedal, which is interesting, and follow a liturgical calendar, while others are not that way. On the issues that we've been normally talking about on like conservative and liberal, such as homosexuality, there again is another spectrum where you can have some that are affirming. For example, the, the Mennonite Church USA recently just voted. I think it was like 2022. They just voted to affirm inclusion, allowing pastors to perform same-sex marriage. And so basically you'll find a wide spectrum. And the Mennonites are actually known for varying quite a bit. Last note, as it's been hinted at, 
Mennonites do not generally follow Simon's doctrines that are unorthodox, especially Christology. Whenever I was looking it up, because I was curious, I, I actually found that a number of Mennonites didn't even know that he held some of those views. That said, it's hard to say which Mennonites do and which Mennonites don't because of that lack of theological clarity or focus. Um, many Mennonites have expressed explicit dissent from these beliefs. Uh, one of them I have um, footnoted that I'll include in the, the show notes is what Minnow got wrong and the difference it makes on Christology where the author is a Mennonite who explains why his Christology was heretical. But the author goes on to say that most Mennonites do not share Minnow's Christology. And I specifically included this because whenever I was looking into Mennonites and got to a source that wasn't a Mennonite, they would generally presuppose that all Mennonites held to doctrines of Simon, such as his Christology, which is not really the case from what I found. Uh, further, many groups affirm total depravity, but not with imputed guilt, which we've talked about in the past. I'm not going to rehash all those. Um, I believe I talked about in the Tulip series. Um, essentially, it is the view that man is corrupt via the consequence of the fall, but that the guilt is not realized until a sin is committed deliberately over and against the notion of Adam's imputed guilt. And then a last point of divergence from Minnow is that the Anabaptists and Mennonites generally reject the divine inspiration of the Apocrypha. I, I didn't find a single group that affirmed the Apocrypha as canonical. Further, I didn't find many that also affirmed his tendency towards sola scriptura, meaning the idea that there's no value in creeds, confessions, or history. In fact, I found many affirming the Apostles' Creed, um, though they do tend to emphasize the New Testament over the Old Testament and the discontinuity there. I didn't really look, I because I just now thought of it, I didn't really think about you know where they fall on covenant theology or um, dispensational type theologies. So that's, that's kind of an interesting study if you want to go look into it. I don't know that they even have that kind of development. I, I just don't know. So basically, at the end of the day, the Mennonites are pretty diverse, and this really should be taken into account when you're considering them and researching them, and um, especially whenever you're even considering my account here because I'm having to pick and choose um, who I'm looking at, what I'm including, and stuff like that. And having interacted with a number of Mennonites or ex-Mennonites online in particular, that diversity is especially seen in experiences shared and interactions with them. Basically, everything I've said so far, I've seen expressed in messages or emails on the topic uh, where someone came out of a really rigid uh, Mennonite background and then another person came out of a very liberal Mennonite background and then another came out of like a Southern Baptist-esque congregation. And so it's very interesting in that way. Um, a last note is that there is a difference between Baptistic and Anabaptistic history. Um, while many have linked them inseparably, and while there was contact between the General Baptists and the Anabaptists, what you find is that there was a group of General Baptists that came and interacted with the Mennonites. Some of them joined the Mennonites, but others reacted against them, and the Baptistic history continued. The roots of the Baptists are in the English Reformation. That's both the General Baptist and the Particular Baptist. We'll talk about them later. But the underlying point is that Baptists aren't Anabaptists, and Anabaptists aren't Baptists aside from both believing in credo-baptism, but they're not Baptists in terms of that theological category. Um, 
And so to equate them is useful for polemics, but unhelpful for history. For the rest of this installment, I will be leaning into the Rosedale Network of Churches that's formerly called the Conservative Mennonite Conference. That's going to be the information I'm going to use to look at Mennonite ideology. The Rosedale Network was founded in 1910 as the CMC, but then they just changed their name actually in February 2023, and it's a decent-sized network. I also want to point out, given the discussion on Christology above, this network does have a statement of theology where it affirms that Jesus took on true humanity, fully human, and avoids, quote, a position of a deficient humanity. I will link that statement of faith as well. In terms of sources of authority, the Rosedale Network confesses that the scriptures are the final authority for faith and practice, with the entire New Testament being the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the perfected rule for the Christian church. The statement again says that the scriptures are the final authority and on final has a footnote. And on that footnote, it discloses that scripture is the final, but not the only authority. And that quote, God's people do recognize other authorities such as tradition and the church, or at least are influenced by them, end quote. Among this confession, the Rosedale has a constitution by which they conduct orderly business for the network. Now on polity or church government, from what I understand, Mennonites are congregationalists who often have networks or conferences for the aid of planting, missions, general outreach, and so forth. Rosedale states, quote, the congregations of the Rosedale network are self-governing within the policies of the conference. They share in the doctrinal positions of the conference, exercise edification and discipline as needed for the growth and purity of the church, and are active in evangelism and ministries. Rosedale Network congregations make possible the ministries of the conference and at the same time draw upon the resources and channels of ministry offered by the conference, end quote. So according to that same document, congregations provide their own leadership, usually consisting of a pastor or a team of pastors that has a head or senior pastor overlooking them. Um, and then in this network, the pastors are to be ordained or appointed by both the local congregation and approved by the Rosedale Network. At least that's the impression I got. However, the website continues, quote, other recognized leadership roles include overseer, elder, bishop, and deacon. The overseer or bishop assists in giving vision to the congregation's life and ministry and serves as a pastor to the pastors. And the elder and or deacons assist the pastor in various aspects of congregational life, end quote. I could not figure out what exactly the bishop is in relation to the congregation, because it says that the, the bishop serves as a pastor to the pastors. And I'm assuming since they're congregational, it's within a congregation instead of the bishop being over. So I don't know if that's like, I don't really know the function or the distinction between a bishop and say like a senior pastor. Uh, because sometimes whenever I seen congregational models, a senior pastor would be called a bishop. So I don't, I don't really know. But that was a curiosity I had that I didn't really get to solve. Um, in terms of sacraments and ordinances... When I was looking into this, most Mennonite websites listed seven sacraments, uh, dividing them into two groups. First, the principal sacraments, that is the Lord's Supper and Baptism, and the secondary, kind of similar to what the Anglican Church did. But then I found a couple that didn't make that distinction at all. So I don't really know. Uh, finding information on this actually threw me. This is one of the bits I was having a hard time with. Um, even sources writing on Mennonites said that they held to only two, but I've but I saw several on other websites. And so I'm going to rely on Strawberry Mennonites Church's website and the Mennonite Church USA. 
The Mennonite Church USA is more on the liberal side, which I noted earlier, um, and so that's worth noting here. But both of these are probably the most coherent that I've seen address the, the topic. Um, so for baptism, Mennonites hold to believers only baptism, which we've kind of already gathered from the historical summary, with the mode being pouring of the water, which was interesting. And the one who is to be baptized is to give evidence of repentance and expression of their faith. Again, I will link these articles if you want to look more. In communion, the meal signifies the new covenant and is a communal meal where members renew their covenant with God and each other. Mennonite USA states, quote, The supper represents the presence of the risen Christ in the church as we partake of the communion of the bread and cup. The gathered body of believers shares in the body and blood of Christ and recognizes again that its life is sustained by Christ, the bread of life, end quote. So initially, this quote of having a represents the presence kind of threw me. It's a little bit unclear here, uh, but other Mennonite sources appear to either hold a memorialistic view for the supper or a spiritual memorialism similar to Zwingli's view. From here, the Strawberry Mennonite website points out the following as ordinances, feet washing, devotional covering, the holy kiss, anointing with oil, and marriage. Underneath feet washing, the website says, quote, we believe that feet washing is to be a humble service literally carried out by washing one another's feet in connection with the communion service as taught and exemplified by Jesus. On devotional covering, this is exactly what it sounds like. It's where um, the, the women are to have veils over their head. It says to be worn by our sisters while praying or prophesying and is to be a sign of a relationship to God and God's order. We expect our sisters to wear their prayer veiling at all times, making it neat and large enough to cover most of their hair and head, which this um, from the Strawberry website differs from what I read on Mennonite USA's website, where it seems to take more of a, this is optional kind of thing. And then the next one, the Holy Kiss, it's the salutation is meant to express Christian love and peace and is to be taught and practiced. The next one, anointing with oil, quote, we encourage our members to call for anointing with oil for the healing of the body in times of sickness, as taught in James 5, 13 through 16. This ordinance shall be administered by the ministry. And then seven, marriage is considered an ordinance as well. Whenever it comes to the distinctives, we've kind of already hit on several points and we can kind of summarize with a solid quote from the Handbook of Denominations in the United States, which states, Quote, what do all these groups here categorize as Mennonites and other Anabaptists have in common besides the common history rooted in the Radical Reformation? All reject infant baptism and emphasize voluntary church membership. All believe full Christian existence, even salvation, begins with a conscious decision of repentance and faith made public in believer baptism, which is not sacramental but symbolic or an act of commitment. They are all peace churches. That is, they reject deadly violence by Christians while often admitting that the state must practice it for the safety of citizens. All emphasize separation of church and state and believe churches and worship should be simple, unadorned, and stripped of all that accumulated through post-New Testament traditions. They emphasize the New Testament and even the Sermon of the Mount as kind of a canon within a canon of Scripture and stress discipleship following an example of Christ and the earliest apostles. While they have doctrines, highly systematic theologies are not their interest. They are very concerned with the community, including accountability with and among their churches. 
Many of them make church decisions by consensus rather than hierarchical authority, and some have leaders they call bishops, but they do not embrace apostolic succession except as a succession of true New Testament teaching and practice, end quote. Um, so I guess the, the only thing that we could critique there is the idea of all of them holding in together that there can't be um, a worship with some type of tradition like liturgy, because I've seen Mennonites that do have liturgy. I don't know if that's a recent development. Um, this handbook isn't that old. I don't remember when it's dated to. Uh, that's besides the point anyway. So this list of distinctives does a good job summarizing the group, though one aspect in particular that can stand out as a distinctive is the implementation of church discipline, which goes through a process of attempting to get a member to correct their ways. And if um, a few people confront this individual and they do not comply and they do not repent, then it's brought to the church. And if the error persists, even when the entire congregation is brought into the process of accountability, and then the person may be suspended from the church and be considered separated from the body of Christ. This would include originally shunning and shunning is still included in some Mennonite circles, which was excluding the person from the church or community as a mean of guarding both the community from error and bringing the individual to repentance. However, Third Way states that Mennonites today do not practice shunning, though it is still practiced by the Amish culture in some communities. Yet, from what I've observed, this claim that all Mennonites do not practice it is too broad because some do practice it still today. Though, to be fair, it seems like most Mennonites do not. Just one of those things where painting with a broad brush gets kind of difficult. Um, so distinctives and emphasis can ultimately differ based on the spectrum in which a particular Mennonite community falls. Um, some are very restrictive in many areas of life. We're talking technology or even education or dress. Yet others can, again, look like a Southern Baptist or a poppy evangelical congregation. If we're talking about historically and we're talking like the most conservative in terms of that historical continuity, then we're kind of talking the more rigid Mennonites, for lack of a better term. I know rigid kind of sounds negative, but I don't, I'm not trying to imply that. Um, I have, again, spoken to many from the Mennonite communities, either currently or ex-Mennonites, and I've heard both sides. I've heard both a rigidness without legalism and then a rigidness with legalism. And so that's that's one of those things where you kind of have to take each community on a case-by-case -case basis to understand where they fall on the particulars. I'm not really sure of the networks um, because there are other um, conferences and networks kind of like Rosedale. If you go to Mennonite USA's website, they have a list of them on their frequently asked questions. In fact, that may be a good place to go if you want to learn more. Um, you go to the Mennonite USA website and then you go to about and then there will be a uh, frequently asked questions section where they do list out a list of their conventions. But I really don't know what those conventions look like on the ground uh, because there does seem to be that congregationalist freedom um, outside of that um, mutual ministerial support that conventions offer. Because that's really what they're for, right? For for supporting congregations as they plant and as they try to grow and things of that nature. So that's what I have for the Anabaptist Mennonite discussion. Uh, I have to admit that this episode was more challenging than my other ones so far. Hopefully it kind of gives you a good idea of what to, what to expect or what to think through or, or where to look again. 
that's kind of like the goal, like to give you that starting point of what should I Google if I'm looking into this movement? Hopefully that can help. If nothing else, hopefully that historical survey and those distinctions between the different groups of the Radical Reformation can help you kind of situate um, that not all Radical Reformers were Anabaptists, despite how that's usually framed, or the idea that Minnow Simon's doctrines are what the Mennonites today hold to. Hopefully, hopefully, Mennonite, I can help clear that air for you. So that's going to be a wrap on this one. Until next week, God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Serving of death, condemned we stood. Now reconciled through his blood. For the wages of sin, we could never atone. Oh, none could repay but Christ alone.